Welcome to Nonprofit Investment Stewards with Bob DeMeo and Devin Francis from DeMeo Schneider & Associates. Bob and Devin are passionate about helping nonprofit organizations prosper. Whether you oversee endowment, foundation, or retirement plan investments, this podcast exists to help stewards improve performance, reduce costs, and discover strategies that enable your charitable organization to prosper and advance its mission. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome back to the Nonprofit Investment Stewards podcast. I'm Bob DeMeo, as always, joined by co-host Devin Francis. Today, we have a special edition episode, a super timely topic, our recent elections, and what impact the results may have on investors in general and nonprofits more specifically. A couple things right up front. First, this will be a nonpartisan episode. We'll dive into policies and portfolios rather than political parties. Next, we're doing something a little bit different with questions for our renowned guest. In addition to questions from me and Devin, we have a few specific questions from some of our nonprofit clients. I think you'll really enjoy this show. But first, Devin, how are you today? I am excellent. Thanks, Bob. I'm really looking forward to this modified format with questions from our clients. And of course, I'm looking forward to hearing from our outstanding guest, Frank Kelly with Deutsche Bank. To give you a bit of background on Frank, he is the head of government and public affairs in North America and Latin America at Deutsche Bank. He advises clients on geopolitical and political risks and their impact on markets. He also manages relationships with elected official and legislative bodies. He has quite a storied past, which includes time with the SEC and the U.S. Department of Justice, as well as several roles in the White House under multiple administrations. So, Frank, we are glad to have you here. Thank you so much. I imagine you've been incredibly busy this election season. I have. Thank you for having me. Um, uh, and uh, yes, it's been busy. It's been exciting. And it, it seems it's going to continue to be exciting for, for weeks and months to come here. Big, big changes. Frank, along that note, and so glad to have you. Before you talk about what election outcomes might mean for investors and nonprofits, can you bring us up to speed on where we broadly stand regarding any shifts of power, open items like runoffs and so on? Sure, it's uh, that's where we're 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 still sort of struggling here, uh, in that you still have two or three states that haven't formally been called. I think it's Arizona, North Carolina, and Georgia. Uh, I think also Alaska still hasn't been formally called, but that's not a surprise because Alaska is so massive. They're literally uh, flying in boats and, and off of um, bush planes and other things to get to their capital to count them all up. But at the end of the day, I, I think it's fair and safe to say that Joe Biden's won. It's it's clear that his overall electoral vote tally uh, and the individual vote, he's won by at least 3 million there. Now, of course, President Trump's disputing that, which is his right, which is part of democracy. It's a fascinating thing. I know it seems to be uh, upsetting a lot of people and people want this to be over and finalized, but he's going to be asking for recounts, probably some lawsuits over how mail-in ballots were dealt with, particularly in Pennsylvania. What do you do with mail-in ballots that that may have come in after election day and it weren't properly timestamped? So there's there's some issues that have to be worked out, but though quite frankly may be good in the long term for future elections. So I think it's Biden is, is effectively won, not finalized yet, but pretty much so. The Senate is the big game here because 
you have still three outstanding Senate seats, Alaska, which will go to the Republican. Again, it it's, depends on when the, uh, the Bush planes come in and the, uh, the dog sleds deliver the, the, the ballots. And quite frankly, I think that is actually happening. And then the two big ones are in Georgia. And this is where policy can really shift one way or the other. You have both Senate seats up for a runoff election. Now, normally, you don't have both Senate seats in a state up for election in the same year. There's always staggered. But it, it's an anomaly because the former senator stepped down for health reasons. A new senator was appointed by the governor, but this was then required to run within two years. So that was it hit this year the same time the normal schedule for the other Senate race. This is going to be one heck of a battle. Uh, you're going to see money pouring in there because it's control of the Senate. I think after Alaska, which I think they may even call today, you'll see Republicans will have 50 seats. Uh, Democrats will have 48. And if they get the two seats, Democrats get the two seats in Georgia, then the vice president-elect, Kamala Harris, will be the tiebreaker, meaning the Senate is un in, under the control of the Democrats. If Republicans hold it, of course, they will have a 52 to 48 a vote total. Now, moving to the House, which is the market has missed in, in, a, in a big way, fascinating the play there, what happened. Democrats expected to win a net 12 to 15 seats, which really would have bolstered Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi in her final two years as Speaker. She is term limited herself and said she would step down in 2022. The complete inverse happened. In a surprise to everybody, Republicans have picked up at least 10 seats and may pick up 14, 15. There's about 20 more of these seats that are in recount. So it has it has changed the dynamics in the House considerably and where centrists now, uh, centrist Democrats are much more powerful, progressive left diminished to some degree. And uh, so it's, it's you're seeing a scenario here of Joe Biden in the White House, a Republican Senate, by a narrow margin and a much more centrist house, which says to me, uh, American people have spoken. They want centrist, get it done, come together uh, legislation over the next two to four years. It's such a fascinating time and fascinating outcome. Frank, what do you think the results might mean in terms of the overall economy? Well, you have to look at this uh, from two different perspectives. If Republicans hold the Senate, when one of these two Senate seats or both, even with one, they'll have a one seat majority. Tax reform is off the table until at least 2023 because Republicans in the Senate will block it. Democrats get it. I think there will be a hard push to do a significant rewrite of the Trump 2017 tax bill. Uh, and it could be significant in some of the things that they've been advocating for, uh, financial transaction tax, uh, higher taxes on uh, high net individuals. Uh, they'll point to New Jersey and other states that are looking at a financial, have are implemented a financial transaction tax or a wealth tax, taxes on, on your overall assets as opposed to revenues. So it's, do we have tax reform and in, in February or March, or do we not see it until 20? 23. I think the really fascinating thing, though, is, and let me, I should touch on stimulus and where that goes, because that's the immediate issue. I think stimulus and, and the request for something in the $2 trillion range is diminishing. Energy is, is coming out of that pretty quickly for two reasons. 
One, uh, last week we saw very strong employment numbers. So America's getting back to work. And second, it appears we're on the cusp of, or maybe actually have a vaccine. So how much stimulus do we need from the US Congress? It may be much more targeted, and I think that's where we end up in the 500 billion to a trillion dollar range, but targeted on key sectors, whether it's airlines or hotels or restaurants. So that'll be the immediate battle, certainly over the next month and a half, the lame duck, and, and early in a Biden administration, what, what do we need and, and who gets it? But economically, for the medium uh, and long term, I think the big thing is going to be infrastructure. And I think this is going to be transformational. Uh, and the markets are really sort of beginning to see this. And it's not just potholes and, and rusty bridges. It is, as we're seeing with the President-elect Biden, very committed to climate change and addressing that, meaning ESG in all forms, the E, the S, and the G, become a huge focus and intertwined in the infrastructure package he puts forward. You're looking at something in a three to $4 trillion range. And it's fascinating to see what will be the, the focus of that. It will not only be smart grids, electrical grids, uh, as President-elect Biden has been pushing hard for, why everybody's driving more and more electric cars. Why don't we have electric charging stations on all of our federal highways? Why aren't we doing more on uh, high-speed electric bullet trains to help cut emissions? Because those things are not just a U.S. thing. It's not just good to do it for climate, but it's becoming a competitive issue globally. And no single aspect of infrastructure is more competitive now than broadband, which will be a major platform uh, inside that infrastructure bill. Why? Uh, you talk to governors. I had a conversation with one, one governor just this past Monday who said, we don't have 5G. The rest of the world seems to have 5, 5G. China is out there actually retailing it. They're selling it everywhere. We don't have it. We can't offer it. So how do you track inbound investment with that, right? Governors spend a lot of time trying to recruit businesses to come into their state. And how do we keep up nationally if we don't have better broadband, 5G in the next generation, 6G or wherever we go from there? This deals with the education issue we have right now. 30 million kids are being educated from home because of COVID. Many of them have inferior or no broadband capacity. Teachers, same thing. And if you're trying to sort of cut back on travel and carbon emissions, well, don't we want better broadband so that instead of just zooming each other that we're in 3D or some enhanced capability and this, this cuts down on travel. So this, this appeals to everybody. And most of all, big business who are embracing this for the competitiveness issue, they see profit in it and, and opportunity. And you see that now in Washington uh, and that means that Republicans uh, will not be resistant to this. And quite frankly, they'll embrace a lot of it. Frank, thanks for touching on what sectors might benefit. Given the outcome of the elections, what sectors might face more challenges? And then how do you feel broadly about stocks and bonds on a go forward basis? Well, I think that in terms of what sectors get touched or, or will be impacted, clearly healthcare. I think the pharmaceutical sector right? Uh, there's a lot of things that won't happen. So for example, 
concern about the banning of fracking, which Joe Biden has been very clear he doesn't want to do, even though that there's a big sector in uh, a section of his party that wants to ban it outright, uh, including his vice president, who campaigned when she was running for president, she wanted to get rid of fracking. I don't think that'll happen. But there'll be nervousness there, there in the oil and gas sector. Um, and, and where you go. And again, this goes back to Georgia. We're hanging on what happens on Georgia. Uh, because one of the things that we have to pay attention to here is that if the Democrats do get control of the Senate, we're not in a parliamentary system. They don't have to do what the president, even if he's in the same party, tells them to do. And the, the more progressives is the fear in the market. The progressives will push on taxes. They will push on banning, on fracking, and that this sets up a, a challenge to the president-elect on, on how things go. And this is why you're beginning to see, by the way, more and more commentators uh, publicly wondering if Joe Biden is happy with the idea of having a Republican Senate because it keeps that wing of his party in check. And he's a great negotiator and that can deal with uh, Majority Leader McConnell and uh, because they've known each other so well. So I, I think the energy sector is going to be a big focus. Uh, healthcare and what happens uh, down the line. But quite frankly, I don't think anything radical happens if we do have this Republican Senate as a speed bump to any sector. Uh, I don't think anybody's in line to, to take significant hits. I think there's probably going to be in the financial services sector, uh, our world, more scrutiny. You will have tougher regulators being put in place, whether it's the SEC CFTC, OCC, or the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. But remember, again, because you've got a Republican Senate likely, you're not going to see anybody go in there who is, uh, you know, uh, breaking China in the China shop because they can't get confirmed if they are seen as too aggressive towards that sector. So for now, I think it's almost a status quo thing. Uh, which is a, a big, uh, just an overall positive. And I think that's why the market is reacting the way it is. To the bigger question of, of, and I think that kind of goes to your second question, where does the market in terms of stocks and bonds go? I'm not, an, uh, I'm not a market strategist and don't want to pretend to be, but I think overall it's, it's a positive. One other thing to, to pay attention to though here as well is Republicans holding the Senate, the fiscal hawk has returned. You're starting to see the plumage re reappear among Republicans, uh, hence their argument for only a $500 billion stimulus and against $2 trillion. So at that point, what does that do? And I leave it to, to the listeners here to figure that out in many ways, because I don't want to be pronosticating on Fed policy per se. But you'll have Jay Powell there. I think, quite frankly, I'd be surprised if he's not reappointed uh, when he's up in two years, I believe. So a lot of predictability in the bond market. And we start wrestling a bit with the fiscal debt, which we haven't talked about for two years now, or four even. So I think overall, quite a positive outlook from, for the market. So Frank, as you know, most of our listeners are involved with nonprofit organizations, either as CEOs, executive directors, board members, investment committee members. Can you talk a bit about what nonprofits might be in for in general, and perhaps even more specifically with regard to their endowment and foundation asset pools? Well, it's a great question. And I think this really gets to two things. One, again, if we, hold, uh, if Republicans hold the Senate, then you're not going to have any 
tax issues coming up. Not that the endowment uh, or, or non-for-profit sector would be in any sort of risk at that point. But of course, when you start playing around with, with the tax laws, anything can happen and it gets everybody a bit jittery. So I think one, it's very safe at this point and that you will see the ability in terms of people making contributions and the, the tax benefits to that. So it's a good time here, I think over the next two years where people will really wanna step up. And also if you're looking at the prospect of major tax reform, if Democrats take control of the Senate in 2022 that, and, and, and keep hold of the House, well, and 2023 is taxes, my guess is a lot of people are going to be doing a lot of tax planning over the next two years and making a lot of decisions in terms of their charitable contributions and, and what they are doing. So it's going to be a very, I think, interesting and, and opportunistic time. The second thing I, I want to just point out is what's going to be very interesting as well is something that happened literally October 27th, which the market has not really paid attention to, but I think is quite big. The chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, uh, Congressman Richie Neal, and the ranking Republican, Kevin Brady, from Texas, the two most powerful tax writing members of Congress, either side, came out together and presented bipartisan legislation to strengthen American retirement security. It's a big comprehensive bill. It's got components in there to encourage and enhance contributions to endowments and non-for-profits for tax purposes as part of planning. Uh, it enhances significantly retirement planning opportunities for firms. Wow, where did that come from? Nobody, and I mean nobody, was expecting to see this happen. But these two powerful guys came out together, again, bipartisan, put down a marker. I think you could see that legislation move in the first six to eight months of next year. That could be quite a positive for the sectors we're talking about here. That's terrific, Frank. I don't know if uh, you're going all the way to the point of a Goldilocks scenario, but it does sound like charitable organizations will be in a positive light uh, for for some time here. And that that's absolutely terrific. Frank, what we're going to do here is jump to some questions from clients of ours from various sectors in the nonprofit world. And the first comes from Andy Horner, who's executive vice president at the University of Dayton, a large endowment uh, portfolio there that they oversee. And he asks, many universities received CARES grants both directly from the federal government and from their states. The monies were important to offset costs associated with the pandemic and to hold down tuition. And given we're in a lame duck session or about to be, what is your best insight into the timing and magnitude of another stimulus package to support industries like higher ed that are facing really significant revenue pressures and all these unplanned costs? Well, first, uh, go Flyers, University of Dayton, a lot of friends who went to that great school for a great, a great uh, question. Look, I think it's going to be tough to get something done uh, in the lame duck session. But where they're going on a lot of this, there's a lot of money still sitting out there, right? I think the last time I checked, there's like 110 to $120 billion in the PPP program. Well, what are we doing with that? Can we divert that to other things? Can we help universities in some way? So there's a lot of discussion going around that, but the problem is you're running out of time. Uh, most members, you, you find members who've de been defeated. I've seen this, I've grown up here in Washington and fifth generation Washingtonian and uh, two third generation were uh, father and grandfather were either lobbyists or, uh, or analysts for government. You literally find members, if they've lost, 
they come back and literally pack up and leave. Seriously, they're, they're gone instead of serving out the full term. So you, you start seeing, it's kind of like those last couple of days of university, if I can uh, <laughs> know what it's like, right? Where people just, I'm done. I finished my exams. I'm gone. Senioritis. Senioritis, precisely. You have that as an issue. And so it's hard to get this done. And I think this ends up becoming more of an early January with the new Congress. But again, you're going to have to figure out who wins those two Senate seats. And at that point, I think it's much more it's much more negotiated and targeted. And as universities and others make the case, and now is the time to really make the case on on aid uh, between now and then, because it's also kind of the sweet spot for congressmen, because there's so much going on. They're not going to get attacked if they're helping out the home university, if they're doing something for sectors. Right? The politics has just been drained out for the next two and a half months. And actually, it can be sometimes very constructive as you're trying to get a major piece of legislation through, like the appropriations bill that they need to do to keep the government running, the defense appropriations bill, multi-trillion dollar things, and you just tack on these things. Nobody, nobody squawks. It gets done. So it's the time to press and, and press, press hard. So our next question comes from Russ Gronewald, who's the CEO of Bryan Health, which is a hospital system. So Russ says, reining in the cost of prescription drugs was a priority of both Trump and Biden, with both favoring increased price controls, either in the form of international indexing or imposed spending caps. Do you expect the new administration and or Congress will be able to do that? And if so, what impact, if any, will it have on pharmaceutical stocks? I think a couple of things are going to happen here in 2021. The House representatives certainly will do a look back at the pharmaceutical industry and how it performed uh, during COVID. What were what were the prices of pharmaceuticals? Uh, surprise pricing, whether for medical treatment that people were getting, or were they getting hit with shockingly high pharmaceutical prices unexpected that aren't covered? So there'll be a, a review. We're going to do a review of a lot of things over the next year in Congress, right? How banks performed, how, you know, what, what was going on in the rental market, just the full gamut, what worked and what didn't and what needs to be done legislatively to fix it if, God forbid, we enter into another pandemic scenario. There will be a lot of debate over pharmaceutical pricing. But again, this goes right to control of the Senate. If Republicans hold control, they're not going to do anything about it. President Trump talked about it a lot, but quite frankly, I don't recall him ever actually pushing specific legislation. He did things tinkered around the edges, I would argue, and having Department of Health and Human Services do things and trying to work out marginal things, but there was never any major legislation. If there is a Democratic Senate, I think this is something that you would see a potentially big debate over pricing, over price capping. Uh, and, and the whole, everything that you've raised in your very smart question. Uh, but again, it, it depends on this outcome of these two Senate races. I keep going back to it. I know it sounds like a broken record, but it's shockingly amazing how different the scenario could be if, if, if Republicans lose those two seats. It just underscores the importance. So uh, don't mind you uh, revisiting that at all. Our second to last question comes from James Fawley. He's CFO at the Morton Arboretum, and he talks about the Fed uh, really indicating that short-term rates will remain extremely low for the foreseeable future and economies everywhere are struggling. He asks, what alternative investment ideas should be considered to traditional fixed income 
to provide current income and or meaningful returns. And I ask this on his behalf, knowing that you're not a investment portfolio manager first, but any broad thoughts on that, Frank? Well, again, I'm not a, a market strategist and certainly not a fixed income strategist. I, some of our folks at, at DWS would be fantastic in, in advising on that. And I work closely with them. I would say this though, it's pretty clear that that there's a very good relationship and an old relationship, uh, many years, decades between Jay Powell and Joe Biden. They've known each other that long, and it seems to be quite friendly. And and Powell is seen by Democrats, and certainly has been over the last three or four years of his tenure as chair of the Fed as as nonpartisan and really great to work with, and very responsive to their questions and their needs. So I I think. Quite frankly, the idea of him being uh, replaced at the end of his tenure is relatively small. There may be pressure within the party to put somebody in there uh, other than uh, other than him. But I think, quite frankly, they'll want to keep him because he's been a steady hand on the till. I don't think there will be any political pressure to raise rates at all. And I think that their performance, certainly during the crisis, uh, in terms of rolling out all of these different uh, emergency funding avenues, have been uh, widely applauded. There's been some hiccups and bumps, but look, they tried. And, uh, and I, I, so I think that, that that keeps things going where they are. The other thing to also remember here in terms of stimulus and what the Fed's role here is, remember that Jay Powell has been urging Congress, bring it on, literally, I think this is his word, bring it on, bring more stimulus, we can tr- control it from this end. That is music to the ears of uh, everybody in Washington. Even the fiscal hawks will smirk and say, yeah, maybe we can do a little bit more here. So overall, I think that there's going to be continuity and stability to the to the Fed, meaning there's going to be continuity and stability to their monetary outlook over the next two to three years. As to where you, you go alternately, I'm not the guy to ask. You, you don't want to ask me that because Quite frankly, uh, you'll, you'll end up bankrupt probably. <laughs> well, then we appreciate you not giving an answer to that question. <laughs> okay. And then our last client question comes from Eli Rosario, who is the CFO at Heartland Alliance. And Eli is curious about your views on ESG and socially responsible investing over the course of the prospective Biden administration. I know you talked a bit about the potential for infrastructure spending focused on climate change. So that, you know, speaks to the E, but if you can share any other comments you might have. Well, I think this is everybody, when they hear ESG, focus on it as if it's solely environmental. And I think one of the things that you will see is a focus on the S and the G, the societal and the governance. And what role do businesses have, for example, to help to to be more stakeholders than shareholders? I, I point out and remind everybody, in one of his first major speeches after becoming the nominee, President Biden said the era of shareholder capitalism is over. Well, that wasn't like some sort of Marxist diatribe. That was, it's now the era of stakeholder capitalism. And you're beginning to see this. I mean, certainly we at DWS are very focused on this as well, that businesses have a role to play in helping the communities they live in and society overall. So that gets you to the societal side. That gets us to, in the wake of the the nightmare and horror of what's happened uh, in Minnesota and elsewhere, 
in terms of social justice issues, racial justice issues, that that businesses actually deal with this and embrace uh, ways to be more inclusive. I mean, I see that here at DWS, and it's no longer just sort of happy talk. It's not aspirational. No, no, this is, we've got to do this, right? And, and quite frankly, it's good for our nation, it's good for our country, and that this is where the market can play that role. So it's time to step up and do it. And it's, there, there's great outcomes that can come from that. Biden is going to be very focused on this. It was even before we, we started taping here, news coming across that he's going to be looking at the Department of Transportation and several other agencies, not for the traditional role that they, that they played, but what role can they, what, how are they addressing these very issues? Not just climate, but society, right? What are we doing for people in terms of transportation? What are we doing in terms of broadband? What, all of these things. I think it's going to be really fascinating to see the transformational aspect of it and what can, is potential here four years from now. And I'm not being partisan. I am not a partisan analyst, but where I think we may just be at this sweet spot where Republicans and Democrats see the markets can play a very important role here, not to run wild and be making money off of poor people or what, but that they can be transformational. And if this can be hammered out, this can happen. And guys, let me just add this. The one thing about Joe Biden, I think people should think of, he is the first hardcore legislator we've had sitting in the White House since Richard Nixon in his first term. Think about that. And I have the greatest respect for Barack Obama, who was an extraordinary, extraordinary president, but he wasn't a legislator very long before he was just swept up and, and became president of the United States. This is Joe Biden for 40 some years in the Senate, working side by side, almost the same time frame with Senator Mitch McConnell. They're in each other's heads. They know each, it's like two great chess masters who know each other's plays. And it makes for very exciting and, and but I think quite fulfilling legislative uh, opportunities here. And I say Richard Nixon, think of this first term, not impeachment Nixon, second term, first term, a former vice president who had been a senator for 20, 30 years. Look at the things he did across the aisle, seen as a conservative, but what he did on, on pricing for uh, gasoline, uh, it's fascinating stuff. I think we're at that moment. So to, it's a long answer to your question, but I think this gets back to where ESG becomes a defining blueprint for how business and government operates going forward. Frank, this is all so incredibly insightful and, and so timely and uh, frankly, so encouraging. So we're so grateful for all of these insights. Before we let you go, we do want to learn a little bit about Frank the person and and frankly, uh, curious what you enjoy doing outside of work for fun and perhaps in this strange year of 2020, if there are any pandemic silver linings you care to share with us. Well, I, I live on a small farm outside of Washington, D.C., and I, I one of my great pastimes is helping my wife, who actually is the farmer, sort of the reverse of Green Acres, for those of you old enough to remember the show. Uh, she's, I'm the guy in the suit and she's out there, uh, mucking stalls and, uh, helping to birth, uh, sheep and chickens and turkeys, but it's, there's a, there's just a beauty and a harmony to be, which I, I hope people have gotten more of this certain during the pandemic, just nature and being out in nature and camping and getting out and doing things like that. I think, you know, going forward, I think one of the fascinating things is no analogy, certainly historical analogy is, is 
perfect. But think back of the Spanish influenza, and as you read more about that, we came out of the horror of the Spanish influenza, which was so much more deadly than what we've, we're dealing with now. I can't even imagine what it was like. That got us into the roaring 20s. I think there's so much pent up energy, excitement, opportunity. It's like a new day for everybody. Everybody's just being released. And I think that and the technological developments that are at hand here um, and, and where we're going technologically and, and the, the spin-off capability, uh, whether the government's doing it. I mean, I, I talk regularly, people think I'm nuts, but Donald Trump created something called Space Force an entire new branch of the military. It's as, if you've, it's as if he had created the US Navy and said, okay, we better start building ships and everything to support it. This is huge, techno, it's all technological, 100%, where we are, you know, whether you, you worry about it from a, a military perspective, I, I understand that, but think of the, the, the R&D that goes into that. I had a conversation with a friend of mine, just to give you an example the other day, and I asked how his brother was, who I knew was had joined Space Force. And I said, what's he been working on? He said, oh, he just he's just finished the prototype of the flying car. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so we've had Humvees and everything. What we've seen, what's happened in, in Afghanistan and the horrors of landmines. Why aren't we just flying troops at low altitude or even high altitude at high speed? Okay, well, I'm not I'm not a warmonger. Trust me. But think of what what is the personal commercial civilian spinoffs of that. And particularly if that gets you beyond carbon emissions. Wow. Wow. We're not talking 50 years from now. We're talking five years from now. Right. So watch for that. I think there's so much exciting stuff ahead and, and how we all come together post pandemic lessons learned opportunities. So we never go through this again. That's, that's really exciting. I couldn't agree more. Well, Frank, it has been so great to have you on the show. We really appreciate, obviously, your understanding of the political landscape is just second to none. And we appreciate hearing your perspective and all of the great insights that you shared. If folks would like to learn more, where should they go? Well, they can. Uh, we publish stuff and we have uh, weekly calls on the DWS website, America's website. Uh, my partner in all this, Kevin Sheehan, uh, is, is the, probably the best guy to go to because he, he deals with many of you, Kevin.Sheehan, S-H-E-E-H-A-N at DWS. Or myself, I'm at Francis, F-R-A-N-C-I-S dot J dot Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y at D-B dot com. Happy to answer your questions. So much going on. If we can be helpful to you guys sort of navigating the next couple couple months, we're more than happy to help. Frank, this has been an absolute pleasure. Just a real joy to hear so many things and so many fronts related to current events. So thank you, Frank. And as we wrap things up, want to make our listeners aware of a very timely guide that Devin and I just co-authored along with another colleague. It's called Six Tips to Managing Endowment and Foundation Investments. It's a 20-page guide filled with not only timely, but we hope super useful insights. You'll see a link in the show notes, and you can download it without any cost. So to all you good stewards, thanks for investing time to help your nonprofits prosper. We'll connect with you soon on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Nonprofit Investment Stewards Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified of new episodes and visit DeMeoSchneider.com for more information. 
The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of DeMeo Schneider & Associates. Content is made available for informational and educational purposes only and does not represent a specific recommendation. Always seek the advice of qualified professionals familiar with your unique circumstances.